Merry New Year! Happy New Year. In this country, we say Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you for correcting my English with stinks. I am Nanja Ibuko, exchange student from Cameroon. <laughs> All right, kids, here we go. February 4th through 6th, next seminar up. That's half sold out. After that, we have April 1st through the 3rd, and then June 3rd through the 5th. For camps coming up, Plano, Texas, with a coaching development camp covering how to coach the squat. That's on January 9th at Starting Strength Plano. Then we have a self-sufficient lifter camp on January 22nd in Wichita Falls. Then we have a brand new camp on the list, a lift-shoot-fight camp. That's over two days on April 30th and May 1st in Wichita Falls. Squat camp on the list in Oklahoma City at Starting Strength. Oklahoma City with the original bendy boy himself, Chase Lindley. That's January 29th. Then a bunch of squat and deadlift camps on the list. Next one up, January 9th on Long Island with Mario and Luigi. Then January 22nd in Brussels, Belgium. Then Orlando, Florida, also on January 22nd with yours truly, so come check me out and see why I have a face for radio. Then finally, February 26th in Indianapolis, Indiana. We've got a bunch of starting strength gyms that have started their pre-sale events, so check out Beaverton, Oregon, Katy, Texas, Chicago, Illinois, and Memphis, Tennessee. For more information on any locations, head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. Good news, folks. Ray Gillenwater is recovering beautifully from his recent neck surgery, and it looks like he will, in fact, be recovered in time for the International Breakdance Fighting Championships in February. So please continue to cheer Ray on. And as usual, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. It's uh, it's good to be here with uh, with our friend Malcolm Kendrick again. I'm uh, Dr. Kendrick has agreed to uh, spend some time with us today. He's a busy guy, and I appreciate appreciate the time. Uh, this is the second time we've talked to him, and I appreciate both times we've gotten very very good information. And uh, those of you who have not memorized the previous podcast need to commit all of that material to memory and then start on this one. And you need to get uh, a couple of books. Uh, first book is Doctoring Data. This teaches you how to think about medical shit. Okay. And then you need to get this. This is his new book. It's called The Clot Thickens. And in this book, he talks about heart disease and all the, the mythology that has risen around heart disease. And we're going to talk at length about that today. But uh, Malcolm, first off, let's we might as well just go ahead and touch base on this COVID-19 bullshit. Uh <coughs> Again, thanks for being here. Sure to appreciate it. Uh, have you uh, got any insight into why 
everyone in the world has apparently agreed to pretend that nobody can afford to be sick for any length of time ever again. Well, I think it's interesting how easily people have fallen into this. I was discussing it earlier on with actually um, uh, a friend of mine, Ivor Cummings, and he, he and I share pretty much a view, which is we, we were amazed, if you like, how how the story, the narrative, whatever term you use for it, has taken over. Yes. And how, how quickly people have fallen into line. I, I kind of hope there'd be a bit more bit more resistance um to to i, I don't like to use the word the word totalitarianism or, to blindly following orders well blindly well, yes, following without, orders is what we're doing without without questioning uh things i mean over here uh, obviously i live in the uk but I, I get the impression the mainstream media seems to just be absolutely incapable of asking any questions they, absolutely. they just go along with that's the it, way it, it is. Media is the same here, Malcolm. It is. It is. Uh, these people, are, every single one of them, and I mean Fox News, all of them are on exactly the same page, and uh, it, it's like there's a phone call every morning, about seven o'clock, where they receive the the phrases and the words they're going to use today and uh, you know i know it's um i reminded um i remember hearing about a civilization i think it was in peru this is going back say 2000 years and they found this artificial hill had been built and then on the top of this artificial hill there had been a huge fire and obviously whatever had been built on top of this hill had been destroyed and then next to it was an even bigger hill and everything on top of that had been destroyed in a huge fire beside that there was an even bigger hill and in the end everything on that had been destroyed by a huge fire and they said well what what's happened it, it, the the explanation appeared to be that the priests had told everybody that if you follow exactly what we do here is our great temple we build it higher and we will make sure that you are all protected and then then along came el nino and then the crops failed so rather than saying to the priests, you have no idea what you're talking about, the priest said, what we must do is we must start again. We must build a bigger, a bigger mountain and then a bigger mountain. And eventually, of course, presumably after the third mountain had failed, people turned around and went, you know what? I think these priests are talking a crock. I think we should just kill them all. Yes, and took, that's exactly what should have happened time, to you know. Yeah, it seems to be where we are. We're building... We build a we build a hill and and the predictions don't work and then we need more vaccinations and then people right. nothing changes and then and then they just say well the problem is we didn't do it enough right we, and then the only wrong. thing that makes the slightest bit of sense is if you are looking at this from Pfizer's perspective because yes. the sixth booster that's going to be worth a lot of money yes you know well. And as long seven as billion, and the, 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 the odd thing, man, is that we're just this money is just being printed out of thin air. It's not really money. But as long as it spins like it's doing right now, I guess Pfizer's happy with that, aren't they? 
seven billion people, but maybe half a bill, half of them, three and a half billion uh, people get vaccinated. So it's going to cost about forty bucks each, and that's uh, eighty billion a year, twice a year, one hundred and sixty billion a year. It's not bad. It starts to add up to real money. It starts <clears throat> adding up to real money here pretty soon, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, I, I, it just, your original point, though, is the most important one. When did we get so incapable of, I mean, we, we must be the most credulous society in the history of the world. That's the, I, I've never seen anything like this. This doesn't make sense. To a, I mean, a three-year-old who has just learned how to talk is is intelligent enough to see what the hell is wrong with this, and yet we all pretend as though there's nothing wrong. That this is yeah. a terribly important question because this kind of thing, this kind of blind acceptance of the narrative handed down from the government or the corporations running the government or whatever the hell's going on has been responsible for a lot of dead people over the course of human history. Well, I think people have provided warnings in the past, but of course, if you dare to bring them up, you're accused of, uh, of scaremongering. You know, if you say, listen, how, how are freedoms destroyed? How, how, do we, how do we lose them? Because people make other people frightened. Once people have you frightened, and once they, as in George Orwell's 1984, there was Oceania and Eurasia, always at war, and always we had to protect ourselves from these terrible enemy, and we could then do what you liked with the population. Right. We're, we're here. We've always been at war. And everybody goes... <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I just recently reread that book, and it's just so bizarre. I mean, we're just living through this. You know, pretty soon the gray uniforms will be issued, and we'll just put them on. Yeah. Right. Everybody will just. Uh, well, it's it's for our own good. Yep. So, anyway. Well, that having been said, uh, and I, it, you know, really, there's just not much point actually talking about it. We're following it real, real closely on our web site. We've got three million views on that thread at this point, and uh, we're following that at a level of detail that no one else is providing because we're we get people posting stuff from all over the world, way more stuff that than than I personally can keep track of. And it's a it's a pretty good little way to keep in touch with what's actually going on. Those of you that are not familiar with with the startingstrength.com, uh, it's my Q&A, Mark Ripito Q&A, and it's the current events thread. Um, there's a whole lot of information on there every day. We put up pages and pages every day, and it's... Uh, if you, you know, people stumble onto the website and post stupid things like, well, of course the, the vaccine is safe and effective. The government says, so I just delete that because I just, 
you don't come on and type that shit on my website you know you 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 have the information right in front of you and you choose to ignore it but uh but beyond that i mean i don't know what else there is to say this is a terribly huge problem and uh it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon but what i wanted to doc- talk to dr kendrick about today was the uh, the work that he has done over the years on the uh, on the problem of heart disease. Now, uh, the uh, doctoring data was written. When was that? Two thousand six. Is that right? I think it was a bit after that. I can't quite remember now. <laughs> It's about 10 years ago, maybe. Yeah, something like that. It it's uh, This is serves as an introduction to the to the subsequent work. Um, and if, uh, if there was a good summary for doctoring data, uh, I, I, I'll, I would summarize it as doctors are not familiar with the data, and they will doctorate to suit their own particular agendas and as a result you the patient i'm sorry but you the patient are required to be at least partially responsible for knowing what you need to ask the doctor and how you need to ask him that when you have to go see the doctor is that close yeah, I think that's close. It was written really because it's very clear that people were, um, you were getting all this conflicting information and you would get headlines that didn't make any sense. And I just thought it was an attempt to say to people, that where, how, do, how does this come come about? Where do you get this information from? Where do you get these headlines from? How how can it happen? And um, just to try and explain the, thing, the, the the games that are played with the data that go on behind it and try and make that clear to people so they can understand it for themselves. So when someone says this statin reduces the risk of, of heart heart disease by by um, 36%, which sounds incredibly impressive, that makes you sound like you'd be a fool never to take this drug. I mean, this 36% is, is heading towards a half. It reduced my risk of heart disease by half nearly. And you say, well, what does that actual figure mean? Where does it come from? And when you start pulling it apart, you realize that actually it doesn't mean dying of heart disease. It means actually a reduction in the prevention of non-fatal heart attacks and strokes. And the 36% figure is actually means that at the end of this study, for example, 97% of people who didn't take the statin didn't have a heart attack. And 98.1% of people who took the statin didn't have a heart attack. That was the difference was between these two groups. And then when you take it further, you realize that actually there was no difference in cardiovascular mortality. In other words, there was no difference in the amount of people who died of heart attacks. It was non-fatal heart attacks that were reduced by 1%, inflated to this 36% figure. And the difference in overall mortality, in other words, the difference in dying of anything was completely unchanged as well. So we have a, a headline that says 36% reduction in in, car, in heart attacks, 
All right, and the reality is no difference in heart, heart attack death, no difference in overall mortality, 1% difference in non-fatal heart attacks. So it is amazing what you can do with figures. As someone said, figures don't lie, but liars can sure figure. And, um, and, and unfortunately, that's how it goes. So it's just trying to help people understand this, really. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that, because this is, this is beyond a lot of people's ability to understand. It is the manipulation of statistics. So go walk us through this. How does 1.5% become 36%? <clears throat> Well, it's the difference between multiplication and addition. But put it this way, if um, I, I try and explain it to people that maybe this works, maybe this doesn't work. You have, you have so 100 people in, in each side of a trial. 100 people are given a blood pressure-lowering tablet, and 100 people are given a, a placebo. Right? At the end of your trial, okay, one person has died in the blood pressure-lowering group, and two people have died in the placebo group, right? So effectively, 99% of people are still alive in the in the drug group, and 98% are still alive in the placebo group. Now that difference is 1%, 98% versus 99%. But the relative difference is one versus two, which is 50%. So what you say is there was a 50% reduction in heart and whatever, outcome you're measuring death or whatever i mean you can do the same thing if you have then have a thousand people and then in a thousand people at the end of the study 999 are still alive in the in the in the in the treatment group and 998 are alive in the placebo group so it's 0.1 percent difference but the the, the relative point one percent absolute difference yeah Right. But one percent absolute difference, but the relative difference still remains at one versus two. So the relative difference is still fifty percent. And you can keep doing this until it's nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. And you can keep doing this. So the relative difference can look like fifty percent. Yes. So it's it's you know, I sometimes say to people, I can I can double your chances of winning the lottery straight away and you go, How how do you do that? So we'll buy two tickets. Buy two tickets. Um, your chances have changed from one in 30 million to one in 15 million. So your absolute <laughs> increase in risk is one in 15 million increase. But your your relative chances of winning have, have doubled, 50%. Now, this is, so this is a terribly important thing to keep in mind for the lay public. All right. We are told, we are told things that cause us to buy medications, to ask our doctors to please prescribe for me this thing I saw advertised on the telly. And uh, because it's, you know, obviously it's going to reduce my risk of having a heart attack by half. Yeah. And uh, and they do. They write it. And, uh, you know, then the drug rep who brings them lunch once a month uh, gets yeah. to sell more product to the local pharmacies. And uh, it's a uh, this is uh, this is all because people do not understand the arithmetic here. And yeah. I, you don't have to be a statistician to 
to understand this. It is as simple as understanding the difference between absolute risk and relative risk. And if they are telling you about relative risk, they are not giving you the data. No. And if they're not giving you the data, there's a reason why they're not giving you the data. And once again, I'm sorry, but it's up to you, the patient, to learn enough about this to please ask your doctor why he wants you on a statin. My God, I got some blood work results back today. Um, and I don't know what, what they're doing in Manchester, but uh, over here, do you know that the reference range for for total cholesterol has been lowered to 200 and below 200 uh, who yeah. has 200 yeah. you know i mean i yeah. used to run I, i'm running a little higher than that now i'm certainly as hell not concerned about it but i've you know back when i was training hard and eating red meat three times a day and eating organ meat two or three times a week and you know dozen eggs at a time my serum cholesterol, total cholesterol, was always less than 200. I can't tell you how many times I've uh, eaten a half pound of liver, going to have my blood tested, and have it be 192. You know? Yep. it's. Uh, but now the, the reference range is, is below 200. So they can sell us Lipitor? Well, yes. So they can sell us Lipitor. Well, they people. don't want to sell you. They don't want to sell you Lipitor anymore. They want to sell you the injectable um, RNA changing, <laughs> right, right, cholesterol lowers. Right, then right. they, they are they are they are the ones that are experimental uh, gene therapy. Yeah, yeah. I guess they the probably lit up on the statin marketing since they've got the vaccine now. Yeah. Well, maybe that's good. But I've just, you know, if you allow these companies to manipulate the, and you're not going to convince me, and I know you won't try, uh, that the the pharmaceutical manufacturers have, don't have some kind of influence on the reference ranges that we see in these tests. It is impossible that they don't have an influence on that. If you can get the reference range of. Uh, total cholesterol down below 200 then you could sell a hell of a lot of drugs because you know uh primary care physicians are not particularly bright people and they're you know they'll just they'll just write you know what they're told because i mean the drug rep did bring the office lunch last week you know and uh if you can get the the reference range for testosterone down below Oh God! What is it now? Eight fifty to one seventy-five or some preposterous. Yeah, about that. It, it's you know, where the top end of the range is three digits. It depends on the lab, but yeah, three digits. Three digit. A thousand. The top a, a thousand a refer a, a a total testosterone of a thousand is considered high. It's considered outside the range. It's just dumbfounding. But that's the game they're playing. Yeah. 
it is. Well, it, of course, it's the same thing has happened with blood pressure. When when I graduated, the high blood pressure was considered 160 over 100-ish. Right. That was mildly raised blood pressure. That would now get you uh, an ambulance to an ED and, um, and an immediate <laughs> infusion medication. You know, uh, uh, and it's come down, it's come down. We, we, the, uh, a study in Norway, and this is going back 20 years, found that if you followed the guidelines, this is 20 years ago, for cholesterol lowering and uh, blood pressure lowering, 95% of men over the age of 50 would require treatment of some sort. Which well, is that's just an ideal situation. <laughs> well, it was. It's the same with 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 them all. The, the 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 diabetes numbers have come down. You know, we no longer have diabetes. We've got pre-diabetes, and right, and, right. and cholesterol's come down and down. It's it's just a continuous. It, it is. Uh, if you do an analysis of the risk calculators for heart disease, um, by the time a man is in in the U.S slightly different in the UK. By the time a man in the US is 53, the, no matter if they have no risk factors whatsoever, they are told that they should start taking a statin. Yes. In the UK, it's uh, 59 to 60 because age is, Just is a risk. The, the age is, risk itself is a risk factor, whether or not there is any legitimate signs at all. Yes. No, well, that's it. So if your risk is, is calculated as over 7.5% of having a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years, you need medication. And, um, <laughs> of course, when you when you look at the calculators themselves and people have looked back and said, how accurate are they? They overestimate risk by a factor of about five. So <laughs> I think you're, you're quite right in saying that, of course, these things are driven by financial imperatives. And unfortunately, the the experts in cardiovascular medicine, every single one of them is is basically works hand in glove with the industry, and yeah. and and you know work hand in glove with the industry if you want, that's fine, but do not then sit on guideline committees deciding who should be treated for what, because I think that's an impossible situation that just should not be allowed. Yeah. Well, and, and what has happened is is that as uh, as time goes on and the population of the planet increases and public health improves and fewer and fewer people are sick just because of basic, you know, basic changes to the way society functions. You know, greater emphasis on exercise. You know, more people than ever are exercising. It is necessary to maintain the treatment pool at financially uh, lucrative levels. And the way they've chosen to do this is they reduce the reference ranges. They just, uh, they just move everything down to where everybody's treatable. Yeah, and, well, that's I mean, this, here, how about the PSA thing? This is, you know, this is this is this is terribly interesting to me. Uh, PSA is a is a is an interesting example of uh, how reliance on a essentially useless test gets people killed, and it's it's done this since they've introduced it. Somebody comes into the office with a. Uh, 
PSA of 4.1. And then they go back the following year with the, with the PSA of 4.9. Uh, they say, well, this is a, this is almost a 20% increase in your PSA over the course of a year. There may be a, maybe something going on. We better go in there and do a needle biopsy of this nicely encapsulated organ. And, uh, yeah, I know it, it, you know, may cause problems with your erection, but that's not as important as your life, you know? And uh, may make you, you know, the, oh God, here's a we got some cancer cells here. We got to scrape that prostate out, and then you know you pee yourself the rest of your life. You can't even masturbate because you can't get it up, you know. And then they tell you that testosterone is deadly poison, and it will cause the cancer to come back, and it's what's caused the cancer to begin with, and all these, all this bullshit, 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 piled one on top of another and it just it's, it's just one more example of we just manufacture things to treat well of course they they do i mean the manufacturing is is only just started off because clearly what they're doing now is doing genetic testing for people and um and they're going to make this more and more and more of a thing until eventually they they're going to say that they can identify a hundred diseases, a thousand diseases, ten thousand diseases. We're all going to have a disease of some sort pretty soon once they've got the genetic thing. Well, of course, completely under control. And then everybody and then, can be treated for something by the pharmaceutical well, industry. Well, it will be, and and of course these things tend to be monoclonal antibodies, and boy, these are costly because one there's one that's recently come out for um, treatment of um, a form of. Um, Spinal muscular disease, it's a genetic condition, it's quite severe. But one injection in the UK, it's just been approved, one injection costs £1.7 million, which is $2.5 million. <laughs> oh, well, I wonder who gets approved for that injection with the National Health Service. Well, it, it, there's not many people have got it, but, I mean, you're talking... Two and a half million dollars for one injection. That's just that's kind of, you know, you do feel like asking them, well, how much does it cost you to make this? Because come on, I, I know how you make this stuff. Isn't that difficult? They've just said, right, there's there's a hundred people with this, and therefore we're going to make it mind-bogglingly expensive because we can't get our money back on it if we don't. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they claim they claim it costs two billion dollars to to develop a drug. Well. They just pluck this figure out of the whatever. Well, if, if it costs that much money, it's the result of the regulation mechanism that causes it to cost that much money. The, the well, process it is it's, like itself that, yeah. is just the lab stuff, right? But if you impose with uh, the with our FDA and your version of that, a bunch of hoops for all of the manufacturing people or the labs to jump through to get these things approved well yes you can make things hideously expensive you certainly can do yeah. that uh well i don't i don't think it costs that anyway i don't think I've, people have tried to say well let's see your costs and um they're remarkably reticent is this figure that they just pluck out of the sky right because for some of them it's if you've got to do a study on ten thousand people for five years that that can get expensive 
but but when you're dealing with other things, it it could be like you develop a vaccine. You don't even need to put it through clinical trials, and then wallop, off you go. Well, and then if you're Pfizer, you say, yeah, we'll be glad to show you all this data we've accumulated on this thing in 75 years. We'll show you the data. Well, who that's even asking this question is going to be alive in 75 years? This is, I mean, you don't have to be this bright. You don't have to be very bright to understand what's going on here. And, uh. It is just absolutely fascinating that. Uh, well, I think it was, it was Eisenhower in the fifties who, who warned of the um, industrial complex. You know, what was it called? The, uh, the military-industrial complex. But we we now have the pharmaceutical-industrial complex, which is yes. which is equally a worrying thing because they do have an extraordinary power because they are very very powerful and influential and um and 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 they don't i'd like to think they do but i don't think they have the well-being of the human race at the basic center of what they do (laughs) no i i find that difficult to believe i mean how much of uh a given television network's advertising revenue comes from the promotion of pharmaceuticals now, I don't know because I don't watch TV, but the times I have been in, say, a restaurant or a bar and the TV is on, every time I glance up, there is some new bizarre treatment for some obscure disease being advertised on TV, and they all end with the words M-A-B for some, yeah. with the letters M-A-B for some reason, and... uh all of these things are being, uh, you know, with uh, the the people in the ads have got this faint smile on their face, you know, very carefully crafted smile. They don't want you to th- to to see these people as just having come, you know. They're not that happy, but these people are most profoundly not sad anymore. Because they're taking this MAB stuff, right? And over and over and over, I see this, you know, as I glance up from my roast beef sandwich onto the TV screen, and I I see pharmaceutical ads. And uh, it's just just absolutely fascinating that... uh, An industry like this has assumed such a position of dominance in this culture. I mean, how many people in the United States, maybe you know this, Malcolm, how many, how many people in the United States are on prescription medication? Have you seen well, any numbers about that? Well, how many in the know, UK? It, yeah. Well, it's the U.S. is... It's more than the UK, but we are we are pretty close. Um, um, I, I'd have to, you know, I'd be pulling these figures, but essentially, the last time I looked, I believe, don't quote me in this, but the number of people who are taking five medications or more who are over sixty-five is around about forty percent in the UK. I think it's about sixty percent in the US. 
I believe it's the figure of, of taking some form of medication is, is in the 90 to 95% figure for, for middle-aged to, to older people. It is, it is much rarer to not be taking something than right. it is to be taking many things. Poly, polypharmacy is the name. It's like polypharmacy may taking right. many different medications. I mean, I work in, um, in part in what's called intermediate care, which is partly would be elderly care for people who've got medical issues and we're trying to get them back onto their feet and we have a drug chart and it has um the drug each drug chart has 16 um spaces for different drugs and uh and 50 percent of the patients in our unit need two drug charts because they can't all be fitted on one so 50 percent are on more than 16 different medications wow and um if i try and take anybody off anything I just get shouted at by their primary care physician. He said, why on earth have you stopped there? Whatever, you know. Right. And I go, because because when I was at medical school, we were told no one should be on more than five medications maximum, if at all possible. But that seems to have switched around. Nowadays, the, the issue seems to be... We start with no five and go five. up from there now, right? Five, five is the minimum. You know. What do you mean <laughs> they're only on five medications? I mean, have you, what are you doing? You're trying to kill them. And you say that patients, relatives, I, I had a, going back about a month, I had a patient who was, was 102 years old, uh, a fully demented patient in a, in a nursing home. And the staff were saying, oh, well, she can't really swallow tablets. Can you put her on a liquid statin now? And a went, statin no. for a 102-year-old female. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know what we, else you need to know besides that. I mean... That's, well, uh, well, well the, only, the only other thing you need to know is that as a tablet, the statin is about 30 bucks a year. As a liquid formulation, it's about 3000 Well, Well, how about that? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I'm acquainted with an older gentleman uh, who had a stroke oh, six months ago. They have him on... They had him on 10 medications, yeah. 10 different medications. Testosterone was not one of them, by the way. They had him on 10 medications, and he had the stroke. He came out of the hospital, and they had him on 11. <laughs> now, uh, the 11th one was an antidepressant. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, I think if you're 73 and you've, been in the hospital with a stroke that it's probably fair to say that some degree of depression is normal you know but malcolm i know i know of at least one doctor and 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 uh probably his brother here in wichita falls that have uh put people on an SSRI prescription on the basis of a 45-second visit in in the in the the little room off to the side of the hall. I know people who have been put on statins without having seen the doctor. On, just on the basis of their blood work, without having spoken to the doctor, yeah, uh, 
it, it just goes on and on and on. And, uh, and we have been trained as a society that if you that that medicines are all good for you they're all good for you and the more you're on the better you'll be and i you know this is a this is a function of a very very bad science education for the vast majority of the population well i think so there is I remember looking, uh, there's very few studies have been done on taking people off medications because, of course, once you're on, everyone's terrified that if you take someone off and then something happens, you'll be held responsible yes. for that thing happening. Yes, you'll be sued. There was a study in Israel where they looked at uh, nursing home um, residents and tried to stop as many medications as they possibly could. And... Um, and at the end of about an 18-month period, the ones they took off the most medications the mortality rate was, was 50% less than the ones that had stayed on all the medications. <laughs> this is not a perfect study, but the, the, there, is a, there is a movement um, of which I was a part, and I, I should re- rejoin, called, called Too Much Medicine, which is kind of driven by the British Medical uh, Journal, amongst others, where the, this issue of over-prescribing medications is they're trying to do something about it. But it is incredibly hard because on one side you've got well-meaning people and on the other side you've got a multi-trillion dollar industry. Yeah. And, um, and, and the desire to do something is, is so enormously powerful that, that the concept of saying, you know what, just, just leave it alone. You know, just, this is so little benefit here, so much potential harm. You know, we have people, just one set of drugs that I really don't like, they're called PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. Right. Reduce the amount of acid in your stomach. And and just about every single person I see is on one of these. And I think, and, and they're supposed to be short-term. Well, they were supposed to be short-term, but I've never seen anyone taking off one of these in my life. And um, apart from me, and I go, I think maybe you should stop taking them. And of course, then they get rebound and then they get worse. But And, and these drugs, they lower your magnesium level, which is a disaster. The lower your sodium level, I've seen people who've got sodium levels so low they've died because of this drug. They they reduce uh, vitamin B12 uh, absorption. Um, calcium and, and levels they, go down. And, and, and they do. I mean, and, and yet they're just dished out. I mean, you can get them over the counter and you think this is a really serious medication. It's got really serious adverse effects, most of which are kind of subtle. And, and, and if someone dropped dead of a heart attack, no one's ever going to say, oh, that's because of the PPI. They won't, won't even recognize that that could be a possibility. Right. And then I'm going, how, what, what, you know, what are we doing with these people? You know, um, it, it is, um, you know, as you say, the, the, the current concept is this is all horrendously helpful, healthy, and wonderful. But in reality, you know, when you give one drug and you have some idea maybe what it's going to do, although individual drugs could have four or five different effects. By the time you've got five drugs in your system, you really have no idea. You have no way to calculate all of the variables you're perturbing here. You don't even know what all of the variables are. No, no. This is the interesting thing about physiology, isn't it? Is we have an idea what the primary physiological perturbation of a pharmaceutical is supposed to be. Right, yeah. and this is what it's designed to do, and we're willing to put up with 
perturbations in physiology that are that we call side effects, right? But it is a mistake for people to think that we know all of those variables that are being perturbed by these medications. We don't know. The systems are very, very complicated. You have multivariate systems at at that with so many variables that you you really don't know what's going on. We kind of have an idea, and that's how the things get approved. But but it, when you and then when you put five of them together, or ten of them together, or eleven of them together, you have no idea what is going on. No well, you idea. Can't have any idea what's going on. I mean, I look at you know, statins is a, is a, a type of drug I've looked at in some detail. What they call off-target effects, or what they call pleiotropic effects, which are a technical term for things that it does that aren't the thing that you actually designed it to do in the first place, or didn't design it to do. I mean, I, I've added up 42 pleiotropic effects of statins last time I looked. Things that statins do that nobody knew they did to start with, or if they did know they did, they didn't do anything about it. I mean, one of the things that it does. Is of course the same um, the same tree that creates cholesterol at the end, metabolic tree of thirty six steps, also creates about six other quite important substances or very important substances in your body. One of which is a thing called coenzyme Q ten, which is called ubiquinone. Mm-hmm. And if you block cholesterol synthesis at the stage that statins do, you reduce the amount of coenzyme Q ten by fifty percent. We know this, and they knew that in in, in the original trials, such that when they were about to launch it. Merck, who had the first of the statins, were going to put coenzyme Q10 as a co-drug with statins, right. so you had to take the two of them together. And then they just realized, well, that doesn't look very good, does it? No, we no, no. We just sell you Qnol. Yeah. We'll just sell and, you and, some Qnol to go along with your statin prescription. Let's do that. I know. I know. Uh, and, and so they knew these, th- they did know these things. And I, I don't know how many of these things that they do know. I mean, you go back to a very basic drug like aspirin, which was, a re- which was designed originally, it reduced inflammation and fevers. And then they found out, oh, look, it, it, it stops platelets sticking together so it can prevent heart disease and strokes. And now at the moment they're promoting it because it seems to reduce the risk of um, of uh, cancers spreading, and, and, and which I believe it actually does. But, I mean, when it was developed, no one had any idea about these other things right. that it did. They just had no idea. And so every drug has got the – there is no such thing as as an absolute silver bullet drug that just hits it's the exact target. Not how want. pharmacology works. It's not how it works. No. And, but you can't explain that to people that, that are not educated about physiology. You, you just can't no. explain that to it. They think that here's what this drug does. So I'm going to take yeah. this, and that's what it's going to do. But if you try to explain all the other perturbations to your physiology that are the result of taking Vioxx, for example. I know. You know, I mean, you know, the, you know, the history of, of uh, pharmaceuticals are, are littered with the corpses <laughs> of... <laughs> People who did not understand that this is a multivariate system and that the thing that the drug is going to do is not the only thing that the drug is going to do. That's just what they told you it was going to do. 
and there's a whole bunch of other stuff, a lot of which they don't know about. So, well, of course, you can't know all the systems. I mean, no, there's you can't do it. I don't use an example in the in in my book of um, I mean, thalidomide, which didn't actually ever get launched in the U.S. I believe, but it did in Europe. And it caused a terrible problem with uh, shortened limbs and people's Thalidomide was a famous example here. That's why they... Uh, Did they launch? I had that's, some idea. That's that why they, the FDA is in existence, basically. Exactly. Is, uh, and then, and, 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 was, yet, and thalidomide is a perfectly reasonable analgesic yes. if you're not a pregnant female. But they didn't well, think yes. about that. Well, also, the interesting thing is in all drugs, you have a right-hand version and a left-hand version. It's called stereoisomers. Yeah. This is how the world works. What they discovered was it was only the right-hand version that caused the problems. The left-hand version didn't cause any of these problems. In fact, they now use thalidomide to treat cancer and leprosy and all sorts of other conditions. They don't call it thalidomide anymore. No, no, no. They... That would be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> So they so give it another name. No one, <laughs> no one had any idea that drugs came in two different handed versions. Right. Hard well, to sell. Anyone, anyone, who says, anyone who says they know what any drug will do, for sure, is, is talking nonsense. Nonsense. And we, we, we pick these things up. And then we add one drug to another drug, and we add another drug to another drug. I'm amazed that any of these people that I deal with are still alive. I think if I took all the drugs you're taking, I, I'd imagine I would just drop oh. dead. Yes. You know, I, I can't imagine what my body would do with all these things, but um, but there we go. And one of the things, of course, that happens is that we see people, elderly people, who come in who are on five blood pressure lowering medications, and um, and then we because we get them one didn't work, well, and, yeah. and then we well, had to use another one, but we didn't think maybe it'd be good to drop the one that didn't work. Uh, <laughs> well, I think what what really happened is the patient wasn't taking them. Yeah, well, <laughs> the there's that too. And when yes. they came to see us, suddenly we give them all five and their blood pressure goes through the floor. Like, <laughs> right, okay. So then you, you have to stop them all and then you maybe start with one and go, right, well, you actually didn't need any of them, really. Um, really, and then, your and blood pressure is 140 over 95. Do we really want to treat that? Oh, yes. We, <laughs> it keeps the ambulance away. You know, this kind know, of shit. But in, especially in, in older people, the amount of falls that you get due to blood pressure dropping when they stand up, postural hypertension. That. It's like, well, we don't care about that. What we care about is the blood pressure. Yes, but if someone collapses yeah. Yeah, and falls we, and breaks their hip. We care more you know, about the chronic problem than we do the acute problem that puts you in the hospital. Yeah. We care more about the chronic problem that has the potential to someday be a problem. But we don't care about the acute effects that can put you in the hospital now. Just no. bizarre, isn't it? We, we, I mean, a statistic in the UK, as I know this one, is that for hospital discharges, 25% of readmissions are, are actually just because people um, take their medication wrongly. They don't understand what they're taking anymore. I mean, if you ask people, if you hold up uh, you know, the drug for a patient and say, what do you take this one for? They don't have any the majority, idea. Just, they just don't even know. No. I mean, they do not know what they're taking it for. The, they just take it. They never did know. No. Because it wasn't explained to them. No. And they weren't curious about it. Well, it's a lack of curiosity. And here we are. Well, you know. It, it, 
I think it is that lack of curiosity. It always amazes me. I've always been quite curious about stuff, but um, it's amazing how many people just, you know, the experts say it. It's the blind trust problem. Well, life is easy that way. The blind trust problem. There it is again. You, These people are operating under the color of an authority that you have given them, and you're just going to do what they tell you to do because, after all, they are experts. And experts mm-hmm. know what's best for us. <laughs> uh, like, uh, the, the, the man who wrote the, uh, the books on evidence-based medicine, David Sackett, wrote an article about 20 years, more than 20 years ago now, where he called for the... He called for the compulsory retirement of experts. He said, you know, you should, be allowed, you should be allowed to be an expert for three years, and after that, you're gone. You have to go away. Uh, because you're just inhibiting everything, and you're, you, you, you carry too much authority. People won't challenge you, and you're using ideas that are 30 years old. Just go away. Well, that would get rid of Fauci, wouldn't it? That would well, be a beneficial he, he thing, seems, wouldn't it? He seems a very tribal chief of um of that he he is the expert unchallengeable knowledgeable because he speaks for what he says is science see yeah he is science he is science he's the living epitome of science the living essence of the scientific (laughs) method is anthony fauci although he has never been right about anything once in his career well, but yeah, because he hasn't that. yet been fired, he represents the science. It's just amazing. I, I remember, uh, I think I mentioned this last time we talked, 1988, when he and his buddy Robert Gallo were telling us all we would be dead of AIDS by 1992, predicted 22 million cases of AIDS in the United States because it was going to get out of the original population and into the general population, and that we must all immediately stop fucking each other. And, uh, you know, and uh, maybe take some AZT. And uh, it's just just amazing how absolutely wrong the man was. And yet he retained his position of employment and is today and I don't know if you know this but Anthony Fauci is the highest paid federal employee in the United States it's uh it's just amazing it, it absolutely is amazing and Kerry Mullis nailed him to the wall man <laughs> you've seen that video of Kerry Mullis saying Anthony Fauci doesn't know anything about anything. (laughs) I loved it. Oh, Malcolm, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the clot thickens. This has been a topic of interest of mine for decades. Absolutely for decades. Because uh, heart disease kills a whole bunch of people. It does. As a result, everyone is scared of heart disease because nobody wants to die. And so, everybody paid attention to Dr. Ansel Keys. Yeah. And 
let's. I'd like for you to go through the history of of this cholesterol theory of of uh, dietary cholesterol, dietary saturated fat theory of of heart disease. It has never been true. None of the studies, even the huge studies like Framingham, never, ever showed any relationship between either dietary cholesterol or dietary saturated fat in heart disease. They never showed that. And yet, that's the conventional wisdom. The American Dietetics Association is still recommending a low-fat diet for some bizarre reason that they don't bother to explain because everybody just knows. So tell us about this. This This is the craziest story in the history of medicine. How did egg yolks become the cause, the primary cause of death of everybody in the United States? Yeah. It's an, well, in a way, it's a bit like the COVID narrative. There's a narrative <laughs> came about. Yes. Um, That's... After the Second World War, um, heart disease appeared to have come almost from nowhere to be wiping out middle-aged American men primarily. And and there was a kind of panic because whether it did come out of the blue, and I don't think it did, but it was certainly recognized. Um, it, it was suddenly the number one, and people were terrified of it um, as as we're ter- we've become terrified of things over the years, HIV and COVID now. And, and no one knew for sure what caused it. There were a few ideas kicking around. Before the Second World War, there were some people talking about diet and but there was not much going on. And then suddenly the world's attention focused on this became the number one killer. And um, and people were looking around for an answer. And there was a man called Ansel Keys who made the K rations for troops in the Second World War. He did some quite good research. He wasn't a doctor. He was a physiotherapist. Uh, a, physiotherapist? No, he wasn't. He was a, I've got the wrong word there. But never mind. He wasn't a doctor. He was a researcher. Right. And he said, I know, what, I know what the answer is. It is because we eat too much cholesterol that raises the cholesterol level in our blood the cholesterol is deposited in our arteries and causes thickenings and narrowings that eventually block completely causing heart heart attacks and strokes and one and syllable was, of which is true well not one syllable which is true he then did work which he kind of tried to cover up which showed that when you fed people high cholesterol diet which is mainly if you give people egg yolks because they've got the highest cholesterol concentration any food stuff effectively he couldn't find it made any difference to what he measured and called cholesterol in the blood. So he then just, instead of saying, well, obviously my theory is a crock, he just said, well, it's not cholesterol in the diet, it's saturated fat in the diet. That's what causes it. He had no explanation for this. There was no understanding of this, but he just came up with it. And and really that was it. And um, it was based on no real science, based on no science. Well, it can't be based on any science because there's no science to support it. But I think it, it fitted in with what people thought. They thought, ah, well, people are eating more rich foods. And, and in fact, he went to, to, he was told to go to Italy after the war, Second World War, where there was a lot of rationing and people were eating very little meat in Italy and the rate of heart disease was very low. And he said, that's it. It's proven. This is the answer. He then did some studies, which a lot of people, including myself, say are completely bogus, where he looked at saturated fat consumption and heart disease rates in different countries. And, and said, oh, look, we've got a perfect relationship that we can show. Well, in um, the seven course, countries he looked at. 
in this uh, in the 21 countries he discarded or whatever he, he right. you could find no correlation so essentially it was a case of a man had an idea he was certain he was right there were no other ideas around and basically it just solidified the american heart association was probably the biggest driver of this it took it over and said this is the answer and and then they became the anti-cholesterol anti-saturated fat organization that drove the whole of the rest of the world into this so it uh, it took off and uh, and as you say um how how did it sustain it sustained because it did you know just it, momentum it, it was a good story and, and inertia and one, momentum uh, the thing yeah it was a good it was easy to understand it was easy to well, understand if you believe the lie that 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 arterial placking is cholesterol if yeah. you believe that bullshit then it w- would make logical sense to an uneducated uninformed person that the more cholesterol you eat the more of it clogs yeah. your arteries neither statement is true no um, and, and completely uh, easily falsifiable. I mean, you can find study after study after study that just, you know, I uh, at one point did an analysis in the in, in Europe, um, and it looked at saturated fat intake in various countries across Europe. These data are now no longer available. You can get them on the Wayback Machine, but they were removed. Once I, I like to think when I started writing about it, and we find that the country in Europe that has the highest saturated fat consumption is France. And the country in Europe that has the lowest rate of cardiovascular disease is France. The country which has the second highest saturated fat consumption is Switzerland. And the country with the second lowest rate of cardiovascular disease is Switzerland. Go to the other end. The country with the the lowest rate of saturated fat consumption was Ukraine. And the country with the highest rate of heart disease and cardiovascular disease was Ukraine. And in fact, if you looked at the five highest saturated fat consumption countries versus the five lowest saturated fat consumption countries the difference was that the average rate of heart disease was six times higher in the lowest saturated fat <laughs> consumption countries right so i mean if, if you're it, going it, to it, stop it, it, there with the correlation then you would be right. forced to draw the conclusion that saturated fat is actually protective yes wouldn't you yeah well well from that you would say it was i yes. I, I don't believe it's protective i don't uh, I, I believe that the opposite way around. I think that right. people have been forced uh, to, to stop eating fats, the, what are the normal, natural, healthy fats were designed to eat by nature, and have been told to eat carbohydrates. And eating so many carbohydrates and sugars has been the major problem. Um, so it's not that saturated fats are particularly healthy. It's just if you stop eating them and replace them with tons and tons of carbohydrate, that, with that snack is wells. You remember snack wells? You may not have ever yeah. seen these things. But back in the 80s, when the fervor uh, was at its highest, uh, we were being told that butter is poisonous, literally poisonous. Yeah. That pork fat is literally poisonous, even though it's not particularly saturated. That beef fat is poisonous, but that snack wells, which were these little cookies with no fat in them, they were little sugar cookies. These were, these had no saturated fat in them, and you could eat these all day. And what has happened to the rate of obesity? and type 2 diabetes in the United States since the 80s. As we were told by this this Ansel Keys propaganda, 
this yeah. this these bald faced lies that uh, perfectly normal dietary fat is bad for you. We've been yes. told that, and everybody believed it, and uh, and as a result, uh, the health of societies, you know, as a result of that, now we all have to take Lipitor. Isn't that fascinating? I know it, the, the law. I mean, right. you can you can almost you can see a graph of the amount of obesity and diabetes in the U.S. and the U.K. The dietary recommendations came in in the late seventies, early eighties, and and at that point, the, yes. the graph just precisely. It, it's almost perfect correlation. People have followed this advice. It, it, it is it is um, it's incredibly frustrating because people who should know. When I say to them, well, what do you think happens to fat when you eat it? Well, what do you think it does? Where, where does it go? They don't know. They don't know what happens to fat when you eat it. They don't know, for instance, that if, if you eat a lot of carbohydrates and it's all converted to sugars in your gut and it goes to your liver, that what your liver does with it is it, is it converts that in, into fat in your liver and it transports it out of your liver to distribute it around your body. But the yeah. actual... The format, the form that it does that in, is actually the only potentially dangerous form of lipid you have in your bloodstream. And they don't understand if you eat, if you eat fat, it is absorbed straight from your stomach. It it, is, it then travels from your from your guts directly into your bloodstream, where it is then distributed around your body without ever going through your liver. It has nothing to do with what they call bad cholesterol. This is in LDL. There is no connection between eating fat and your LDL level. And yet everyone goes, well, eating fat raises your LDL level. It goes, well, it can't raise your LDL level because the, the, the two things are completely unconnected. You know, it's, it's so ridiculous that if you understand anything about how fats and, and carbohydrates and the liver and everything deals with it, the, the underlying hypothesis was always utter nonsense. And, and it never made any sense. No. And yet, it's not—it's never been more widely believed than it is today. It's, right. it's amazing. Fifty years later, yeah, without one scrap of clinical evidence, without one study, not a single study, ever having shown a relationship between dietary cholesterol and dietary saturated fat and heart disease. The dominant well, well, mythology. Stop, stop, stop you there for a minute, because right. in the 1970s, 1960s, 1970s, Ansel Keys did do a study called the Minnesota Coronary Experiment (MCE), where he asked people to replace saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats, omega-6 fats primarily, mm -hmm. and then to see what happened. Well, um, there's an explanation. I'm not going to go into it, but the, the actual the the, the cholesterol level fell when they replaced saturated with unsaturated fats but for every one percent fall there was in in the cholesterol level there was a two percent increase in cardiovascular disease now he did that study in the 1960s it, it finished in 1974 i think it was and it was never published until the result the actual data was found in a garage 50 years later yeah by a researcher you, you, you talk about this in your book it's 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 absolutely I mean, amazing that that uh that particular here is an early example of 
the lab values being the outcome, not the mortality rates. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and they yeah. found that's the same thing. Is is I mean, you can. I mean, you know, you've probably read it. I, I've looked through study after study after study after study. You can find studies. There's a study from the from Norway, looking at, at cholesterol levels and the rate of ischemic heart disease, specific form of it. Call it call it heart disease. And and what they found was that women who had a cholesterol level of five and below had forty percent higher risk of having ischemic heart disease than women whose cholesterol, sorry, five is 200, effectively, in the States. Right. We use a different, it's, it's about five equals 200. You know? So, right. so, units so women, 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 women at 260 and 300 had 40% lower ischemic heart disease rates than women at, at, at 200. And that's just a study on 50,000 people over 10 years. A study in Austria showed exactly the same thing. In, in the UK, we have a thing called the UK Biobank, which is an enormous study which gathers all the data on people about all sorts of things. And they try to relate the risk of cardiovascular disease to various things. Well, they find with diabetes, your risk of heart disease was three and a half times increased. If you smoked, it was two and a half times or whatever. When they looked at cholesterol, what they found was that for every um, 40, when you go milligram per deciliter raise of cholesterol, which we call one millimole per liter. Mm -hmm. The increased risk of heart disease associated with that was was zero. Just zero. There was no correlation at all. And this is a huge study carried out, published and in the in the paper itself, the authors they published the table. They they didn't even mention it. They didn't say we found no correlation between cholesterol and heart disease. They talked about all sorts of other it wasn't things. In the discussion, was but it was in the table. It was in. You had to go and find the table, which I did, because I like to look at. You know, it's a like subsection appendix to table four, paragraph seven. Right. You know. Oh look. Oh. Oh look. Oh, you, look. you actually did look at it, didn't you? <laughs> and and, it, and it's like it's always. Oh, we better not say anything because that contradicts everything. And and so you can find study after study in the Framingham study. It's stated that for every one percent um, lower cholesterol levels, a two percent reduction in risk of heart disease. Well, actually, if you look at the data, that is just not even true from the data themselves. They just made that figure up. <laughs> it's not but what the you, data shows. When you look at it, the people who are most at risk of heart disease are people who during the period of the study, their cholesterol fell. And in fact, for every 1% fall in your cholesterol level during the period of the study for the first I think, 25 years, your increased risk went up by 5%. So it was a 500% increase if you're losing relative risk for every one, 5% increase for every 1% fall. Those are the actual data. But people still quote this Framingham data and you think, but that's just completely wrong. You just, where did that come from? Yeah, you know, it, it is unbelievable. They've just taken, in this case, this is not about data manipulation. They this doctored the data. Well, they, they, they so, just made it up. They didn't, yeah. they didn't bother doctoring it. They just, they just ignored it. Well, they, just, said, they didn't doctor it. They just lied about it. <laughs> they, they just complete lied. It's just a, just a bald-faced lie. Well, yeah. that happens a lot. And, uh, like, the idea, for I, I thought it was fascinating in uh, uh, The Clot Thickens, where you talk about the actual composition 
of our atherosclerotic plaques. Yeah. Atherosclerotic plaques, everyone in the United States and probably uh, all over the world has this picture in their mind of a spongy mass of cholesterol sticking to the inside of your artery. And eventually, yeah. every once in a while, a piece of that breaks off and circulates through until it finally gets to the brain and causes a stroke and you die. Or something. Like or something like that. And that's not the case. Of course now, it's not. Now, because, is it? Again, it, it's, it's, it's so not the case, it's just not the case. It's just I bizarre mean, it's that it's not. So what is a, what is a plaque? What do they well, consist of? Yeah, well, well, what does a plaque consist of? Many, many, many things. Plaques were first studied in the mid-19th century. It was, it was crystals, cholesterol crystals. And um, uh, and that was Ver- a guy called R- Rudolf Virchow. He didn't think they were causal. He said, these are a later stage of development. You don't see these until the plaques are quite old and quite well established. But everyone could always cholesterol crystals. That must have come from the cholesterol in your bloodstream. And you go, well, of course, you then get a bit more scientific but you don't have any cholesterol in your bloodstream. You've got these lipoproteins called LDL. We call them cholesterol, but they're not cholesterol. They contain cholesterol. Right. It's a bit like calling a car a human being because cars contain human beings. No, it's not a human <laughs> being. It's a car. Human <laughs> beings are inside it, all right? right? So stop calling cars human beings. Stop calling lipoproteins cholesterol, but, but we do. Anyway, the cholesterol that's within bad cholesterol, lipoprotein, LDL, whatever you want to call it, is actually a combination of one cholesterol molecule and one fatty acid. And when they're linked together, they're called a cholesterol ester. That's just a chemical term. Fat plus alcohol equals ester. But and, and you can't make a cholesterol crystal from these things. It has to be pure cholesterol to make a cholesterol crystal. So whatever is causing these cholesterol crystals to form, it cannot be coming from LDL. The only place it can come from is the only substance in your blood that's got enough free cholesterol to make a crystal. And that is the membrane of your red blood cells. Red blood cells are also actually a form of lipoprotein in, in reality. Um, but they have a membrane that contains an awful lot of pure cholesterol because that actually allows the oxygen and the carbon dioxide to, to move through them. They need it for a particular purpose. Anyway, if you get enough red blood cells together and they break down and you've got cholesterol from them left together, they form crystals. So the finding of cholesterol crystals in a plaque means it cannot have come from what we call blood cholesterol. It can only have come from a red blood cell. Where do you get red blood cells? You get red blood cells in blood clots. That's where they primarily form. It's the only place you're going to get it from. So immediately you start looking at what's inside a plaque, and you say, well, it's got cholesterol. And it says, well, that actually stop, all right? That means it can't have come from LDL, bad cholesterol, the thing we call cholesterol. cannot have come from there. It's got to have come from somewhere else. Now, the people who have looked at this, proper scientists have said, well, well, yes, obviously. Everyone else goes, ah, oh, well, it's obviously come from the LDL. It's obvious that that's what causes it. So you look at other things and you find they're full of all the things that you find in a blood clot. They're full of, you may have heard of fibrin, which is, fibrin is a long strand of sticky protein that, mm-hmm. that forms around all blood clots. So they form and then tightens them all together. Component of connective kind of, tissues, like ligaments and tendons and... Fashion. It, 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 it's sort of like that. And, and of course, that's your blood clotting system is in, in fact designed, a lot of it, half of it is designed to make fibrin to bind around the blood clot and hold it in really tight. Mm-hmm. 
So you can look at a normal artery in a body that looks normal and you can find bits of fibrin in there. Well, you know, the answer is how did it get there? Well, the answer is quite obvious. It got there as part of a blood clot, which was mainly broken down. But the fibrin is such tough stuff. If you don't get rid of it immediately, it's like bones in the ground, if you like. This is a sign there was a clot here at some time. Mm -hmm. so, so blood clots contain, and in fact, if you go back again to 1852, a researcher called Rocky Tansky was the first one to say, when I look at plaques in arteries, what I'm seeing is blood clots in various stages of degeneration and metamorphosis. He said, these are blood clots. I'm seeing fibrin in them. I'm seeing red blood cells in them. I'm seeing platelets in them. I'm seeing all the things that make up a blood clot. And he was forward by Verkow saying, yeah, but how does a blood clot form inside the artery wall? He, he couldn't answer that. And, and that, so his ideas were kind of demolished. But people have taken that up since then and said, well, actually, you know what? When you look at, when you look at plaques, if you look at them in a certain light, some blood, if you look at some plaques, in fact, I think about 40%, they look like tree rings in, a, in a, a growing of a tree. So you've got, uh, basically you can see there's been one episode, 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 episode. It's like things are piled on top of each other. Mm -hmm. What you're looking at there is essentially there's been a blood clot that's formed inside the artery wall. So, that, so you've got the artery wall and then blood, blood clot forms on it when you damage the artery wall. And then most of it is shaved away. But you can't shave all of it away, otherwise there would be no clot left, and then just another blood clot would form. So you'd have blood clot, blood clot, blood clot, blood clot. So the bit that's no, nearest to the artery wall, it remains, and it and it and it stays there until new lining cells, endothelial cells, stick to the top of it, and then regrow, and then form a new layer on top of it. But these cells were not known until the 1990s. They're called endothelial progenitor cells. The endothelial cells line all of your blood vessels. And that where the replacement comes from is within your bone marrow, floats around in your blood. Where they see an area of damage, they stick to it, they cover it over, and they form a new layer of endothelium. A patch. And that a patch. A patch. A repair patch. A repair patch. And then the clot is inside the artery wall. And in most cases, it will be got rid of completely. It will be dissolved away and gone. But of course, if it's not completely dissolved away and gone, and you have another episode on that point, you're now starting to develop an area of weakness where blood clots are more likely to form again and again on that point. And so the plaque will gradually increase in size as more and more stuff gets stuck to it. it repair, clot, repair, clot, repair, and, clot. And if the damage that causes the need for the patch continues to accumulate, and yes. the patching will thicken yeah. and the process continues. Well, that's what's going on. I liken it in some well, ways to, like, roads. You know, you get roads that get potholes. Eventually, right. they'll get potholes. Now, if the council decides to repair the potholes rapidly, you'll have a nice smooth road. If they don't repair them in time, you'll end up with enormous potholes and very a lot of damage. Right. So it's kind of the same thing. The process that's going on here where you damage the artery wall and a, and a blood clot forms and then it's covered over, it's happening inside your body. I hate to panic everyone. All the time. This is just a natural process. Right. Damage repair, damage repair. What well, the problem happens is when the damage starts to outstrip the repair processes. Right. Once it's once it's overwhelming it, and so instead of everything being got rid of, what happens is you end up with a residual problem, and then you you have a, an issue. So what do you think it. about uh, the work of Linus Pauling and Matthias Rath? Well, I with love their respect work. to. Yeah. 
with respect to their theory that essentially exactly what you're saying, but their theory was that the role of vitamin C, ascorbate, figured into this process quite a bit. Where does where does your uh, uh, your theory of the blood clot uh, genesis of, of uh, plaque formation fit in with theirs? Well, I think it, it, I think it would be in a way I would say that what they what they identified was a cause of cardiovascular disease, not the cause. Um, vitamin C, um, we don't make it. Forty million years ago, our ancestors decided they didn't want to synthesize vitamin C anymore, so they couldn't. Now we can't. There's right. about ten different animals. The, they just ate can. it instead of synthesizing it and they saved did. a bunch we, of machinery. Right. Yeah, it must have been easy to get hold of. But if you don't produce enough vitamin C, if you start not eating enough, you get scurvy. What is scurvy is not enough vitamin C. Not enough vitamin C means you can't synthesize one of the, it does an awful lot of things, but one of the things that's key here is you can't make a substance called collagen. And collagen is a thing sharks are made of, by the way. Um, and it's really the connective, it's the connective tissue that holds, it's connective struts, it's the, the steel, the steel within reinforced concrete holds everything together. Right. I think that way. So if you're not making collagen, your tissues start to break. But one of the first tissues that's going to start to break are your blood vessels. And if they start to break apart... The, the ones under pressure. Under pressure. The, the arterial side of the blood vessels. The arterial right. side of the blood vessels would go. Right. Which is why the first one of the first signs clinically of scurvy is bleeding gums. Because yeah. these blood vessels are cracking open. So the body appears... Well, what it doesn't say appears to. What, what our bodies have done is we've produced a kind of super patch... And that super patch is called lipoprotein A. It's a lipoprotein. It's actually LDL, but it's got an additional protein attached to it called apolipoprotein A, which is why it's called lipoprotein A. This substance, which makes it, it's about 20, 20% the level of LDL in most people's bloods. It can be higher, it can be lower. With this substance, the LPA sees the cracks developing. It sticks to it very firmly. It forms protein-linked bonds and bridges that are very difficult to shift. So when LPA comes along, it sticks very firmly to the area of damage. And it's quite difficult to get rid of. So you have a, although the blood clot may not be bigger, it's much more resistant to damage, to, to being lysed, got rid of. So so essentially you have this stuck to the artery ball and it's much more difficult to go. So if you've got lots of cracks in your arteries, LPA gets attracted to them, they develop, uh, they're much more difficult to repair, put it that way. And therefore, what you don't want is to have cracks developing. So you don't want to get vitamin C deficient if you've got a high LPA level, because boy, you're going to have problems there. So it doesn't damage the artery wall, nor does it make the blood clots form more rapidly. But what it does do is it gives you a blood clot that's quite difficult to shift. And the reason why is the LPA, the apolipoprotein A protein, is identical in structure virtually to plasminogen, which is... Plasminogen is converted to plasmin, and plasmin breaks clots apart. That's an incorporated substance in all blood clots. And the thing that triggers that is called tissue plasminogen activator, which people get if they have a stroke or a heart attack. You can be given TPA, which triggers the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, breaks the clot apart, and the clot goes, and that can clear a stroke or a heart attack clot away. But if you've got LPA in your system, what it does is it inhibits this because because the protein stops TPA from working properly. 
an inhibitor. People with LPA, they don't necessarily produce bigger clots. They don't get more damage to their arteries. But what damage they get is much more difficult to shift. And that is why if you've got um, um, a high LPA level, don't get vitamin C deficient. There's some fascinating work. So, so I mean, what what um, what Rath showed was he looked at the if you took arteries out of people that had a coronary artery bypass and examined the, the, the thickened artery, he looked for this protein, this apolipoprotein A protein, to see if that's what you saw in, in the plaques that we were seeing, and that's what he found. He found this apolipoprotein A. Now most people had never looked for this before. They didn't even know to look for it. So when they found what they thought were LDL molecules inside plaques and went, ah, oh, it's LDL. What they were actually looking at was LPA molecules, which are LDL molecules, but they've got this different protein attached. They were looking at precisely the wrong thing and thinking, they were, thought they were looking at this and they were looking at something completely different. And it's just, this is the way the whole thing has gone, if you like. They, they found a lipoprotein remnant inside plaques and said, well, that's LDL, that's the cholesterol we're talking about. You go, no, 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 no. What you're looking at is, is actually LPA. And you know it's LPA because if you find this extra protein, it has to be LPA because LDL doesn't have it. If you also look for this other thing, apolipoprotein B100, L LPA also has that. So if you find the A and the B lipoproteins, uh, apolipoproteins attached, you know you've got LDA, LPA. That's the only thing it can be. And that's what Rath found. It was actually Rath who found this out before, before uh, polling, who then said, well, ha, huh, that is interesting, because what we need to do is make sure that if people take vitamin C and don't get cracks in their blood vessels, they are going to reduce their risk of dying of heart disease. So, here's the $100 trillion question. What causes the damage that needs to be patched? Well, there are many things. Um just looking at the things that people have heard of, yeah, smoking. If you smoke, nanoparticles are released from your lungs. They get into your bloodstream. They bash up against the endothelial cells, and they kill them. You get a healthy volunteer. You get them to smoke one cigarette, and you can measure things called microparticles, which are breakdown products of dead endothelial cells. You can measure them in the blood immediately after smoking one cigarette. <laughs> Luckily, at the same time, the endothelial progenitor cells are triggered into into production in the bone marrow so that the repair systems come in at the same time. But obviously there will come a point if you smoke 80 cigarettes or 100 cigarettes, your repair mechanisms are going to just go hell with Overwhelmed. this. So air pollution as well, small particle air pollution, that can get into your bloodstream and cause a problem. Now looking at other things that people would necessarily think of is lead, the, the heavy metal, which used to be put into uh, car uh, fuel and gasoline. 200,000 tons of lead were, were, were blown out of car exhausts every year in the States. Now, if you take lead and you put it into the body, it, it damages and destroys endothelial cells. We know that you can see it happening. And so it's actually a thing I'm interested in is, was this the reason for some of the increase that we saw and, and a lot of the decrease, decrease that we're seeing? We no longer have lead in, in fuel. So people aren't breathing it in mm -hmm. anymore. You know, what else can damage the endothelial cells? Diabetes, high blood sugar levels. We know that this can cause, because endothelial cells are fantastic, but they're also, you know, if you try and pick up a fish, 
and you grab it, it slips through your fingers. The reason why it slips is because it's covered in a substance called glycocalyx, which is super Teflon. But it is actually like, if you look at it under a microscope, it's like a little lawn. So strands and filaments. And within these strands and filaments it, are anticoagulants and all sorts of things that stop the blood clotting and stop the endothelium from being damaged. The glycocalyx is really important for the health of your cardiovascular system. And we know that if you get a raised blood sugar level, it strips away the glycocalyx. So you can see it's like, there's normally that much glycocalyx and you get a, a raised blood sugar level for about half an hour, then there's that much of glycocalyx left. And you can measure this. And so once this layer is gone or damaged, your endothelium starts to go. And that's particularly important in diabetes for, because the glycocalyx also goes around the very small blood vessels, the capillaries. And if they are damaged, then you damage the blood circulation in your kidneys, you damage the blood circulation in your eyes, it damages peripheral blood circulation as well, which is why with diabetes, you get peripheral neuropathy, diabetic problems and eye problems. You can't get a plaque in a capillary because the capillary is that size and a plaque would be the size of this room. So you, you cannot get atherosclerosis in a capillary. It physically cannot happen. So these blood vessels don't get the atherosclerotic damage. They just burst and die. And you can get a device, you can stick it under the tongue to look at capillaries. And um, you can see the people with diabetes, for example, instead of having 100 capillaries in a square millimeter or whatever, they've got about 20. So the capillaries have been destroyed. And you can actually see this happening. So that will cause it. That will cause it. High blood pressure. High blood pressure. Clearly, where you've got high blood pressure and you've got what they call a bifurcation in the in the artery. These are points where there's extra turbulence and extra strain on the endothelium. That's where they get damaged. And then the coronary arteries. Why do you get so much atherosclerosis in coronary arteries? Well, the heart is the only organ in the body that when it contracts. The blood doesn't flow because the pressure on the arteries, the coronary arteries, is so high that it stops blood flow. It's only when the heart relaxes that the blood flows through. So essentially, someone described the coronary artery as being like a garden hose that's getting stomped on 60 times a day. Bang, bang, bang. So not surprisingly, they're under terrific stress. 60 times you a know, minute. <laughs> every six times a minute. You know, six yes. times a minute. And you've got the arteries in your neck, the carotid arteries. Of course, there's the blood pressure. The blood pr comes straight up your heart, straight up your neck. So this is a very high pressure area for these arteries and very often plaques develop here and when they break off they go into your brain and that causes a stroke so you can look at if you look at say what causes damage there's all sorts of things that can cause damage and you can just say add them together and then you look at things that might damage the repair systems if you damage the repair systems same thing damage is greater than repair problems occur so it's it's a relatively straight, it's a very straightforward idea in a way. And, and as I've said to many people, this is nothing, there's nothing controversial but to say that the final event in heart disease or cardiovascular disease is a blood clot forms in a narrowed artery and blocks it completely. So the artery started that size, it ended right. up that size. So you get an ischemic Bang. heart attack. Get an ischemic heart attack or, or, a, or, a, or a stroke. Or an ischemic stroke, yes. Ischemic stroke. And, and, um, and there's no controversy to saying that, that plaques grow through episodes of repeated blood clotting. People accept that is, is a case. But what they won't accept is that it's the same process at the very start. It's a, you damage the artery at the start and a blood clot forms. Right. It's LDL, it's cholesterol that does that. It's like, well, no, it doesn't make any sense. 
it's it's a blood clotting all the way from start to finish. Right. It's called the thrombogenic hypothesis, and it had been proposed 170 years ago. It's been and it, proposed it, it, and, and the competing hypothesis makes absolutely no sense. No. It, it's this. This is what's so bizarre, Malcolm. Is that is that you've got uh, a perfectly reasonable explanation that accounts for all of the things we know about the chemistry, yeah. about the anatomy, about about the cause and effect of the of the environmental factors that that produce damage to the to the the vascular walls that are that are subject to this damage and we know how the repairs work we know all of this stuff and yet yeah we stubbornly cling to this bizarre explanation that is the equivalent of the tooth fairy it's it 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 makes absolutely no sense when over here is the only thing that does make any sense, and yet we choose this thing here. Right? It's just—it's yeah. like the COVID thing. It's exactly the same mechanism in place. You've got people controlling the narrative. Yes. Who? Well, you do. Yeah. Could give a fuck about anybody dying here? They don't care if people die. You got hospitals that would rather see people die than give them ivermectin. Yeah. Right? You've got people here who would rather cling to this idiocy about Lipitor and cholesterol levels instead of treating the actual causes of the damage, making sure everybody gets adequate levels of vitamin C and 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 taking away the possible damage that polypharma does in these situations. Polypharma probably causes quite a bit of heart disease, doesn't it? Well, yeah, well it must do because we know that some of the processes yes. are going on here. Yes, you can look at a you can look at a PPI, and we see that it it it, it reduces a thing called nitric oxide synthesis. Nitric oxide is the most potent anticoagulant, protects the entire vascular system, and we're giving a drug that knocks its production on the head. You know, absolutely bonkers. You know, just, just bonkers. You know, so it, yeah. I mean, it is. Uh, I do feel like, you know, to an extent, you do feel like saying, "Well, what, what causes heart disease?" Well, it's standing over there with a big banner and going, "It's me. I right. cause heart disease. I cause and heart disease." And everyone's going. But then no, Pfizer's no, <coughs> over here saying, "Yeah, but yeah, we've got this Lipitor for sale." You know. Well, it, it was ever this. I mean, uh, I've, I've used the analogy of the geocentric model of the universe where in the sort of 15th, 16th century where where they said the Earth's at the center and everything rotates around it. And when Galileo came on and said, well, I can see moons going around Saturn, you know, and here's my telescope, go and have a look. The astronomers in the, uh, in the Vatican said, well, we can't see that. Sorry. Yeah, can't see anything. Can't see anything. <laughs> can't see a thing but, but it's, it, it's there you know oh yeah. this is a this this is a mechanism of the devil when you look through this the things that you see you cannot trust you know i mean don't worry people have <laughs> the ability of people as voltaire said it is in the art of self-deception where we practice the greatest invention 
<laughs> people have always been capable of just ignoring the bleeding obvious and instead right. focusing on, on this thing. And yeah, I mean, of course, it's frustrating um, uh, because, you know, and I know a sense of frustration of the people who've been around for 170 years coming up with this idea and just getting nowhere against this implacable stupidity barrier that, that, that is impenetrable. You know, it's it's quite astonishing, but there we are. Right. You know? Well, look, I can't encourage you people enough to get these books. This is uh, Malcolm's new book. It's called The Plot, the Clot Thickens, and then, of course, Doctoring Data. These are these are extremely important. You need to you need to get a hold of these things, and and read them. the The fun part of these books is that they are uh, written in a very conversational way. Th these are not textbooks. They are extremely accessible. They're fun to read. Just take the damn thing with you, and whenever you have a few minutes, just read a little bit of it, and you'll be you'll accumulate your way through the book and. And uh, and you'll be prepared with a bunch of information that the vast majority of people don't have. And uh, I sure do appreciate uh, Malcolm joining us today. Uh, thanks for being here. I appreciate your time as always. And uh, I'd like to uh, to encourage you to do what you can to stay sane. What I've been doing is probably drinking too much, but. It, it, you know, at least I get to sleep, you know, so <laughs> wake up in the middle of the night for a pee. That's the problem. Yeah, that's the that's but that's been going on for about 60 years. So it's no big deal. <laughs> Thanks, Malcolm. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you people for joining us on Starting Strength Radio. We'll see you next time.